0: Yawa Radio, bringing the feel-good feeling to every day. One welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, four thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Every
1: fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Welcome to show 19 of Jordan Space, and this week we're going to be chatting with not one, but two guests on the topic of suicide and its impact on veterinary professionals. Before then, I'd like to welcome Danny back to Jordan Space following a break last week, and of course our other regular co-host, Paul, welcome both. And given that on this week's show we're chatting with guests who work in the veterinary profession, perhaps it would be interesting to stick with an animal-related theme to begin with. And I'll start by asking you, Danny. Yeah, do you think our pets help us to live mentally healthier lives?
2: Yeah, I mean there is a lot of evidence for the positive role and the therapeutic effects that. The pets can play in our lives and um, you know they can provide companionship reduce stress anxiety they can help with loneliness Um, there's a lot also a lot of evidence that they can help build social skills and confidence and, and there's also the unconditional love that the pets can offer and um, particularly with dogs they increase our physical activity and get us outdoors and, and we know that both of those are good for your mental health so there are a lot of benefits for your mental health that can come from having a pet.
1: Yeah, clearly lots and 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 uh, your thoughts, Paul. Uh,
3: absolutely. I mean, I know people who have a, a you know better relationship with their with their animals and with their humans. Uh, and on, on a very serious note, yeah, the therapeutic element that um, I mentioned that that Danny's mentioned there. Uh, I remember doing lots of work with with homeless people and a lot of homeless people feeling that their do- you know their dog was their only friend in the world. And, and, you know, I mean, it can be a very serious matter when when crisis counselors are trained, uh, they're often trained to ask sensitive questions about relationships with pets. If somebody's suicidal, they might be the uh, they might think that the only person that they're leaving behind is their pet. You know, these are very, very serious aspects to it. But also there's another important dimension with um, pets and that's um, around loss usually people's first loss experience is um, often their you know, first loss experiences is with a pet and coping with that is is really important.
1: Yeah, I know certainly, you know, Danny and I are aware that, um, you know, Jordan had a very close attachment with our family pets. And uh, I know at the time Jordan was was living with myself when a uh, little pet schnauzer, family schnauzer called, called Heather died. And, you know, I just remember how really upset, Jordan was so so clearly yes we we know the impact that, that pets um
3: and, and also in in my own case as well with them with our son Chris when he had his brain tumor surgery and was physically wiped out and mentally wiped out as well and part of his recovery was getting a little puppy a little golden retriever puppy who's now a big fat dog <laughs> and um yeah it was absolutely critical component in his recovery just getting that routine of looking after the dog taking the dog out for walks and and uh you know having a great pal alongside him
1: and and danny we we know um there's some research i understand as well around uh, specific uh, mental health issues uh, for very specific conditions uh where pets can be really beneficial as well
2: Yeah, so, you know, it's been looked at that people with ADHD might benefit from the structure and routine that comes with having a pet and and keep managing their pet's responsibilities and keeping track of time, for example, feeding and and walking them um, might help. And it also might help them in other areas of their lives. Um, also some people with ADHD are hyperactive, particularly children. So playing with a pet can be a really good way of releasing excess energy. Um, and it's also um, been looked into that autistic people can can benefit from having a pet. and um, the kind of unconditional relationship that can help someone build social skills and confidence. And it can also help to calm and reassure them if they're, if their owner feels overwhelmed.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? The, the, <laughs> I mentioned earlier about sometimes people having better relationships with their animals than their, than their humans. Certainly. In my experience, uh, in, also in my own family with uh, autism and ADHD, um, you know that people often say that the, that the adults are trying to fix them. You know, the younger ones say the adults are trying to fix them and modify their behaviour all the time, <coughs> rather than accept them for who they are. Uh, whereas, a you know, a friendly dog just accepts you for who you are, uh, as Danny said, unconditional love, and that's uh, often the, the thing that they need most.
1: Right, well, many thanks both. Uh, Look, shortly we're going to be speaking with our guests, Alison Clark and Dr. Rosie Alistair. Before we meet them both, let's listen to our next track, which is Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding.
0: Yawa Radio, bringing the feel-good feeling to every day. Welcome
1: back, everyone. Uh, you were just listening to Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. And it's now time to introduce this week's guest. For the first time, I think, on Jordan Space, we have two for the price of, of one. Uh, we have Alison Clark, who's a health and safety advisor, a mental health first aid trainer with CVS Group PLC and Dr Rosie Allister, who's a veterinary surgeon and a mental health and suicide prevention researcher amongst other things that we're going to talk about today. Uh, welcome both. It's uh, it's great to have you join us today. Now, Alison, uh, you and I kind of met initially through you reaching out to the Jordan Legacy via our website um, last November, and then we connected on LinkedIn, of course, as everybody does. Um, and it was during those kind of early messages, really, that um, I started to get an understanding from you of some of the issues um, within the veterinary profession around suicide. Simultaneously, I happen to have been reading the autobiography Beyond Supervet by the celebrity TV vet Noel Fitzpatrick. And, of course, within that book, he shares you know, what that life is like. Quite, quite graphically at times and some of the struggles that he's had. Um, before we kind of talk about kind of your work and your experience and particularly the issues around suicide, it'd be great to for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you both. And, and Alison, maybe just a, a brief introduction about your work, particularly in, in health and safety, working within that profession.
4: Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, it's, it's actually quite bizarre that I'm actually health and safety advisor now because I started out um, working voluntary in a veterinary practice from the age of 11. So um, mixing an 11 year old with a flock of uh, sheep and and a herd of cattle and lifting 56 pound bags of beef nuts into into troughs and things. It's quite bizarre that I was doing things like that with no supervision or very little supervision to being where I am now as, as a health and safety advisor. I was a veterinary nurse for 24 years and then moved over to the dark side of health and safety, so went from looking after people to, to animals. So that's sort of my my career up to date now.
1: Fantastic. So so a real grounding, obviously, in the, in the profession. Um, don't do what I did. Uh, do do what I want to say now. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Alison and uh, and Rosie. Um, obviously, um, background as a veterinary surgeon yourself, but tell us about some of the other areas of, of, of your work and your background.
5: Yeah, sure. So I've been a veterinary surgeon for around about 19 years. And at the same time I started as a vet, I also started volunteering with the Samaritans. So I've had this kind of parallel interest in suicide prevention for as long as I've been a vet. And over more recent years, I spend more and more of my professional time working in suicide prevention, particularly suicide prevention for professionals. So for veterinary surgeons, for veterinary nurses and for sometimes for other occupations as well.
3: Yeah, Rosie. I was interested to hear you saying that you um, you became a volunteer of Samaritans around uh, about the same sort of town that you became uh, a veterinary surgeon. So, what was the um, the reason why you decided to volunteer for the Samaritans?
5: A number of reasons, actually, and I, I thought about it for a number of years before I volunteered as well. Um, it's because of people that I've lost to suicide. So the first vet I ever knew who treated my childhood pets died by suicide when I was a teenager. When I was at vet school, one of my lecturers died by suicide on a night that they were on call and we were working in the hospital and a close friend of mine died by suicide when I was 18. And. Although I have a very deep love for the veterinary professions, the longer I spent in this profession, I realised that you can do useful things in different ways. And one of the things I wanted to do was to help people who are feeling suicidal and help other people who are affected by suicide as well. So that was what brought me to Samaritan's Volunteering and then later to vet life as well.
1: From your experience, is, is there a particular issue within the veterinary profession in terms of suicide?
5: Yeah, definitely. So for a long time, there's been an elevated rate of suicide among veterinary professionals. We know that among vets, it's about three to four times what you'd expect on average for a population. And that's the same in a number of countries around the world. It's the same in the USA, in Norway, um, in Australia, and lots of different countries they've looked at. We've got reason to be concerned about veterinary nurses as well. There isn't as good research on that, but there's research from the United States about a similar role called veterinary technicians, which shows very elevated rates of suicide among veterinary technicians as well well. So there's concern about a number of different professional roles working within the veterinary professions.
1: And, and from your experience, what is it particularly about this profession that makes you know the the elevated risk so prevalent?
5: Sure. So when you think about what we call occupational suicide generally, um Usually we know that suicide is more common among groups that are suffering from economic distress, so people who are in poverty, people who are suffering real financial difficulty, and clearly for professionals that isn't always the case, but what we know about occupational suicide, there's a number of different models that look at what might be at risk. Generally, things that there can be things that are very stressful about particular jobs, and that can be part of it. There's also sometimes what's called sort of pre-existing mental health morbidity, and that means maybe people who go into certain jobs may be experiencing mental health difficulties already. Um, There's also things about demographics of people who go into certain jobs, so who goes into a job. And then a big thing in occupational suicide, which is a big thing for the veterinary professions as well, is what's thought of as differential opportunity for suicide and what this is about is in some jobs people may have more access to things that are very dangerous in their work that may be involved in suicide. And that is definitely the case in the veterinary professions. There's a lot else going on when you look specifically at veterinary risk. There's a number of different risk factors that have been discussed about veterinary risk, very specific to our job. So it's not just that we have access, there are aspects of the job that can increase people's risks as well, but access is really important.
1: And I don't know, Alison, you, you've had your own experiences with, with suicide in the profession. And I know, you know you've shared with me that very sadly you, you lost a, a close friend last year, I believe.
4: Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, since I'm in veterinary nursing, I've lost four veterinary surgeons, friends, and two very close veterinary nurse um, colleagues. The first one was in 2012. And then, as, as you, you rightly say, the latter one was last year in August, um, a couple of days after her 40th birthday. So, yeah, very sad.
1: From what I understand, the the size of the veterinary community is quite a tight uh, community. So when someone experiences a death by suicide within that profession, what what kind of impact is it having?
4: Yeah, it has a massive impact, I think, doesn't it, Rosie? I mean, you know, we we are, even though, you know, it is a big profession. Everybody knows somebody that's worked in a practice and um, it does have a, a massive impact on, on the profession
1: is, is this is that a fairly common occurrence that that someone working in the profession will have experienced um a suicide if, if not more than one suicide
5: yeah definitely so if you talk to people with some experience of working in the profession almost everybody feels that they've been affected by a suicide and knows somebody who's died by suicide um we are a close-knit profession and um lots of people may have trained with somebody who's later died by suicide we also know that it has a massive impact, um, a death by suicide among veterinary professionals, so one of the things that the charity I'm involved with That Life does is we provide support to practices and workplaces that are affected by suicide, often very quickly after an event, and one of the things that when you do that support you become very aware of is just how many people are affected, sometimes people who maybe didn't know the person very well and can still be very, very affected by a loss. And so, yeah, it has a huge ripple effect on people.
3: It's always interesting when we hear people talking about a particular profession. Um, I've worked in various professional environments and we've had somebody previously on the show talking about, uh, you know, the construction sector, for example, and issues in the construction sector where there's a very, very high rate of suicide. But once you get into it, it's not always the things that people instantly sort of think it probably is going to be. You know, people think construction, oh, you know, it's dangerous and it's and it's hard, heavy work or something. But then they hear about small businesses. Most people working in the sector are self-employed or small businesses and the pressures of that and financial pressures and, and working away from home or you know, working in, in rural areas. And know, other factors all start to come out, which isn't necessarily specific to that profession, but it's that combination of factors in that profession. So what, what do you think it is particularly about the veterinary profession that leads to it having a a, a particularly high suicide rate?
5: It's a really good question. So some of those are the ones I've discussed already around things like occupational stress and demographics and who's attracted to work in a particular profession. Access to means is very important in veterinary suicide. So vets have access to a number of different things as part of their work, um, which are very often implicated in veterinary suicides. And so there's definitely a connection there. However, it isn't just that. Um, There's things about veterinary work that can make it very, very hard for people to ask for help. So one of the things that and to access help as well. So it's not just the asking part. It's also when they ask, do they get the right help? Um, and we know that that doesn't always happen for people. So that's definitely part of it as well. And another thing that you know we think is important is what I talked about before is occupational stresses so aspects of doing this job that I think as you said are quite difficult for people outside a profession to maybe understand unless they've worked in a related role so there's aspects of veterinary work that can be very very difficult Um, things like some of the things that have been talked about as important are things like working in disease epidemics so if you've ever spoken to somebody in uh, the rural sector for example who remembers the foot and mouth um, epidemic in the UK, yep. what a massive impact that had on people's mental health in rural communities and vets were very much involved in that. Um, and that has has a lasting impact on some people in the veterinary sector as well. There's also potentially traumatic aspects of our job in a number of different ways that I think people who maybe haven't thought in detail about what vets and veterinary nurses do day to day might not be aware of. So there's sort of potential trauma at work. There's also things like moral injury and compassion fatigue. So moral injury, is when through acts of omission, acts of commission or feeling betrayed by the authorities um, that you end up doing things in work that feel wrong. And Mm. lots of professionals will have had this experience that you have to sometimes as part of your job do things that you don't feel are the right thing to do. You've tried your best and it still isn't good enough. And it can't be good enough because of the external situation and that can take a toll on people as well. There's also compassion fatigue, which is a type of secondary traumatic stress. So that's being exposed to suffering and trauma in work and the opportunities you have for support and resolving that. And then there's all of the small business issues as well and as well as working for large organisations and some of the difficulties that that can have. So a whole range of different challenges and a lot more than
3: that as well well that's yeah, a long list and I, I wouldn't want to add to it but just just a couple of other things that have come out of talking to people in other professions people often talk about professions being a calling and you know the idea of you love animals you want to be a vet uh, and also once people have done all their professional training and committed to something like that then it, it's it's not something that people easily leave you know other jobs they might not be happy and move on but it's kind of you know is there a sense of entrapment there which we know is a a key factor for suicide
5: yeah definitely so in my research one things i've looked at is professional identity so how you feel about your job and what you think it is to be a professional um, in a veterinary role and one of the features of how people form that identity in vet is they very rarely have a plan b so, actually, not having a plan B is almost a characteristic of veterinary identity. Mm. And we almost select for it as well because it's a hard job for vet all veterinary nursing to get into. It can be very competitive. And that not having a fallback plan can be incredibly difficult, especially if someone has then invested a huge amount of money, many, many years of their life, made an awful lot of sacrifices to do this thing. If the thing then isn't working for them, it can be incredibly hard to step away from it. And people do end up feeling very trapped they also have another emotion that you'll know is very important and implicated in suicidal thought processes around shame so feelings of failure feelings of shame and in a number of different medical professions and I include vets in that shame is a hugely powerful emotion and is almost a feature of aspects of our work Um, and so yep shame entrapment um social perfectionism as well so real pressures on people from internally and outside that they have to be perfect all of the time that there is no scope for things to ever go wrong and how do you cope with that in a job where things inevitably go wrong often?
2: No, I'm just sort of wondering what your thoughts are on sort of the link between the fact that vets have to deal with with euthanasia every day well, like, and that sort of how that links with the thought and perhaps how they view death themselves because do you think that in some ways vets become more desensitized to it or they may might see death as a solution to a problem because obviously we say sometimes or a lot of the time you put animals down because it's kind of for their well-being in their best interests and vets maybe sometimes think that that sort of applies to them maybe in some situations
4: from my point of view i think you're you're absolutely right um, working in the same practice for 20 years, I saw animals come in as puppies and kittens, and then obviously through, through the process of you know having them neutered, and then obviously at the, at the end of life, um, and for vets and nurses and receptionists and everybody involved in the veterinary community to actually have to deal with that day in, day out, and not just once or twice, but probably numerous times during the day. Um, and seeing how peaceful it is for for a pet to, you know, just just go to sleep?
5: Yeah, so this is a really important question. It's one that's talked about a fair amount um, when you look at sort of veterinary suicide prevention. And the evidence on it is really mixed. So people have looked at, do veterinary professionals think about suicide in the same way as they do animal euthanasia? And there's evidence that perhaps they don't generally think about it in the same way, that they do make a moral distinction, at least, between suicide and animal euthanasia. Um, People have also looked at, do people who perform more euthanasia in their job as a vet, are they more likely to die by suicide? And they found that, no, that isn't the case. However, other studies have looked at things that have suggested that there may be a link. Um, My own take on it is, I think there is something important going on around euthanasia. Part of it is the access to um, the the drugs and um, sometimes to firearms as well. However, there is something more than that. So when you talk to vets and veterinary nurses who are experiencing suicidal thoughts, they will very often spontaneously volunteer stuff around. If I was a dog, I would have um, you know, put myself to sleep and they'll talk about alleviation of suffering and they will make equivalences. And so I think the fact that the research doesn't have a coherent explanation yet or that process doesn't mean there isn't something important going on. And I think, I think there is. Um, there's also some evidence that vets who've maybe been involved in mass culling. Um, so, you know, when we think about disease epidemics, those kinds of things, that that can have potential traumatic effects that may affect people's risk as well. So, euthanasia is definitely an important thing. There's also the issue of the support that veterinary professionals, nurses, and vets, and of house staff at veterinary practices, reception staff and others provide around euthanasia for people's pets. So we know that some people experience suicidal thoughts when their pets are put to sleep. That's definitely something veterinary professionals may experience around their own pets as well. And I think this is something that we really haven't looked at well enough in the research yet, the link between the euthanasia of pets and suicide risk. I think it it is important. And I I know that from a number of different um, ways over a number of years.
2: And I suppose they've also got to, you know, once they've euthanized the animal, they've then got to sort of deal with the secondary part of it, of then the owner that's lost the pet. So it's sort of the knock-on effect of that too, I suppose, isn't it?
5: Yeah, and, and the impact that that has on vets is mixed, so there is research that's looked at, you know, do clients expect vets to be, you know, the primary source of support after animal euthanasia? And many people do. Um, there's this real expectation that isn't just for domestic animals, that occurs in farm and equine settings as well, as so farm animals and horses. Um sometimes that feels a very rewarding part of a vet's job or a veterinary nurse's job because it's something that you can really help somebody who's suffering and you can help an animal who's suffering as well so it isn't always a very difficult thing it can be a very sad thing but it sometimes is a rewarding thing to do however sometimes it can be very complicated and difficult and features of the death and of the animal and of the person's relationship with the animal can make that more difficult as well so um, there aren't any two euthanasias that are particularly the same as I'm sure you can imagine because they're characterized by that animal and that person and the relationship that they have.
1: Well Alison Rosie thank you both very much for now we're going to take a break and uh, go into a, a song our next track we're going to play is Hands to Heaven by Breathe and we'll be right back. After this,
0: hi. This is Steve. Join me every day of the week from seven through till ten for your breakfast right here on Yower Radio. Probably the best way to start your day, make a day. Join me every day, seven till ten, Your breakfast right here on your Radio.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Um, we're speaking today with uh, Alison uh, Clark and Dr. Rosie Alistair on the subject of suicide and mental health and its impact within the veterinary profession um alison wanted to come to you talk about your work particularly in health and safety just just for a, a moment and uh, obviously you've got a background as you say having trained as a veterinary nurse and and uh, you've experienced mental health and suicide how important is your role in health and safety from a kind of protective factor would you say
4: Um, Very important. Um, I mean, I I think given what we've just talked about uh, previously, it's very important to look after people's mental health in the workplace, not just in the veterinary workplace, but in every workplace, in my opinion. Um, But especially looking after uh, looking after our veterinary nurses. Um, And I think for me, it's it's um, we, we have to have first aiders to look after our physical health. So I really think it's important that we have mental health champions to look after our mental health as well. It's it's easy to see a plaster on on a, a wound outside, but if somebody is poorly you know um, mentally then it's very very difficult to see that but it's so important to look after after this and i'm very lucky that cvs have allowed me to do sort of about 80 percent of um, health and safety and then and then 20 teaching mental health for our colleagues and the company is very very much proactive about looking after mental health and it leads from the top and Yeah, it's just so important.
1: And and how important, you know, from a health and safety point of view, are kind of policies and procedures in in supporting um, mental health and potentially mitigating the risk of of suicide as well? I I suppose I'm thinking of excessive stress and all those kind of things.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we work very closely with the HR um, team. And it is very important that we look after people in the workplace. And it's something that I know not, not only CVS, but a lot, of, a lot of the veterinary corporates and individual practices, it's so important to look after, after people in the workplace.
1: Thank you, Rosie. Um... When I when I kind of looked at your CV and all the things that that you do from speaking at conferences and uh, all all the work you do um, in other aspects of uh, supporting vets, a couple of things stood out for me though. Uh, a publication uh, from May 2022, uh, which was interesting, which was suicide postvention guidance for veterinary workplaces. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,
5: sure. So. Some of your listeners, I'm sure, will be aware of what postvention is, but for anyone who isn't, it's the response and provision of support after a suicide. And the aim of postvention is to support recovery and also to prevent further adverse outcomes in the aftermath, including trying to prevent further suicide. So we know that sometimes where there's been a death by suicide, further deaths can occur that are in some way connected to that. And so part of what postvention does, as well as looking to support people recovering, is to try and help to prevent those further deaths. So suicide postvention in workplaces is something that I've been involved with since 2009. And in that time we've supported probably near to a hundred workplaces that have been affected by suicide. Um, And we've learned a huge amount from the people um, during that time. And so that was why we wrote guidance for workplaces. We also wrote guidance for workplaces because very often when there's been a death by suicide at work, people are very shocked. They maybe don't know what to do. There's maybe a huge amount of misplaced guilt and misplaced self-blame and other things among colleagues. And so we really wanted to create a resource for people where even if they didn't feel able to have a conversation with someone like me, that they could read it and have a checklist for what they could do in terms of what they need to do to support staff, maybe practical things that they need to do in their workplace. One of the things about veterinary related deaths by suicide is that sometimes when people die by suicide as a veterinary professional they die in the workplace and that's relatively unusual among professions Um, and it's connected to a number of different factors but that means that quite often it's colleagues who find their colleague um, who's died and so there can be potential trauma staff as well and so the guidance covers a whole range of things from the emotions that somebody might be experiencing to who might need support in a practice to what do you do in terms of some of those practical considerations. VetLife also provides um, bespoke support to practices so we will talk with managers and leaders in practices who may be making difficult decisions in the aftermath of a death.
1: Great. Thank you, Rosie. And I know postvention, um, often people will see that as prevention, but I'm aware that there's another important uh, piece of research and a project you're involved with the University of of Edinburgh, along with a number of other people, which uh, is suicide prevention in veterinary workplaces. Would you like to share a little bit about that uh, project?
5: Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I've kind of always wanted to do is to think a bit more about how practically we can prevent some of the deaths by suicide that occur in the veterinary professions. And one of the things that's very important um, in preventing suicide that you'll know from kind of broader research outside of professions is thinking about making places safer for people so when people experience suicidal thoughts, making sure that they're in a safer place as possible so that you can then help them to get through those thoughts so that you have that opportunity. And clearly one of the things that's important in veterinary workplace is thinking about, is there anything we can do about the medicines and maybe farms that we have access to at work that could make things a bit safer? So it's not about making people's jobs harder to do. It's just thinking, given that we know that people may experience suicidal thoughts and that they need support, can we give us an opportunity to give them that support? Can we get a little bit more time and make things a bit safer for people? So I was interested in thinking about that because that's actually quite a complicated thing to do without making people's jobs harder to do because we need access to those medicines and to farms as part of our work. Um, but the other thing I wanted to look at was, um, we know that a lot of people in the veterinary professions have been affected by suicide at work and there hasn't been a lot of work looking at What kind of impact does veterinary suicide have on people? So the impact of bereavement by suicide and we'll all know that bereavement by suicide is itself a risk factor for suicidal thoughts and for suicide and so one of the things I don't think that we do well enough in this sector is supporting people bereaved by suicide. So wanting to look specifically about how can we do that for people who've been affected by veterinary suicide. So this study has looked at um, family members, at colleagues, at maybe people who found the person who's died, um, maybe people who didn't know them very well, but who've been very affected by death. So exploring those experiences, of people affected by veterinary suicide. We've also looked at people who've survived a suicide attempt um, using a veterinary related means. So we've looked at what led up to those attempts for those people, trying to identify opportunities for suicide prevention, for helping people when things are going wrong. And then we've looked at people's attitudes and experiences of restriction of access to means. So are there things we can do to make things a little bit safer for people without making their jobs harder to do at the same time?
3: Rosie, that sounds absolutely fascinating research um, and much needed research. just just to give us a bit of context, can you just explain a bit more about the structure of the veterinary profession? It sounds like there's some larger groups, you've even used the word corporate at one point, and small like family businesses or whatever, rural kind of practices or very small numbers of people. Like, I can imagine the impact of suicide and the potential approaches you might want to take to create those safer environments with people would be obviously very different from a, a larger organisation and a very small organisation.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, yep, the veterinary profession um, is in the UK. A huge number of veterinary practices are owned by large companies, by corporate companies. Um, there's also other structures of veterinary practices. There's university hospitals as well um, that would be affiliated with the university. There's a lot of independent practices, um, which are yep small businesses. Um, and then some of the... Um, Some of the larger groups have different structures within their business as well. So it's quite a complex kind of market, as it were, in the veterinary professions. There's also a large number of people who are self employed. So veterinary nurses and vets who work as locums, who's effectively freelance, and they may not have many employment protections at all. So some of the things that you might think about when you're thinking about sort of generally how to improve people's well-being and mental health at work, things like sick pay so that if somebody is unwell, they can be away from work and still pay their mortgage. Those kinds of things often aren't available to people in the veterinary professions or in a very limited way. And so I think a lot of the assumptions that people make um, about the kinds of sort of workplace support and things that might exist for people and that don't always exist for people sometimes they do depending on their role but sometimes they don't really have much protection at all in those kinds of things so yeah interesting kind of mix of different things going on and you're right the types of suicide prevention efforts you might make are quite different so if you've got a large organization you'd be thinking about how can you make sure that suicide prevention is not just a discrete activity that you do every every six months or every year and you look at it but actually how do you put suicide prevention right through every aspect of of core business, so it's something that is included in a lot of different considerations. How do you um, assess impact on mental health for major business changes? Those kinds of things. There's also, I think, particular work that can be done about suicide prevention and that. So things about thinking about how we safely store drugs. So the Home Office schedules drugs, so they regulate um, medicines in the UK, and there are rules about how certain medicines are stored. But not all of the medicines that are, um maybe could be subject to those rules are subject to those rules and so one of the things we need to think about is do those rules help so does having to lock a medicine away or have to have somebody else sign for that medicine does that help or does that actually make things harder for people so thinking about some of these quite complicated questions one of the other things that we know about medicines is sometimes people think that medicines are only at a risk at the point that someone's getting them out of the cupboard but actually that isn't The case at all. Um, We know that diversion of medicines, so where medicines are used maybe to harm by somebody to harm themselves can occur at all points of the medicine process so in a veterinary practice particularly in a small practice you'll have somebody who orders that medicine from the wholesaler you'll have somebody who unpacks that order and puts it into the cupboard in the first place so just having a lock on the cupboard isn't always enough you need to think about actually how do we make this safer for everybody and crucially not just thinking about restriction because thinking about restriction without giving people the right support is 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 very incomplete as a solution, mm. so it absolutely has to be both. So, how do we create an opportunity to support somebody, and then how do we make sure that support is there the first time they're ready to ask for it? And that's mm. a really crucial focus as well.
3: Mm. And, and Alison, I, I was interested when you uh, said earlier you're a mental health first aider, or, or you teach mental health first aid. Um, that's something that um, Steve and I in the Jordan Legacy spend a lot of time. Sort of focusing on and, and supporting people to do that kind of training and providing support for people after they've done that training. Again, just thinking about this diversity within the profession of larger corporates and, and small businesses. Um, what, what do you think is the role of mental health first aid specifically and uh and supporting people beyond doing training like that?
4: Mm. I think it's important that somebody has a go to person in in practice Um, and in in our particular group, it's the person that we think is most suited to the job. So it could be a veterinary surgeon, could be a, a veterinary care assistant, could be a receptionist, a nurse. It's that person that can be there to support somebody. And we do encourage sort of one or two per practice. Now, practices can be anything from five colleagues to 25 colleagues, or in a referral hospital or university hospital, as Rosie mentioned, it can be 105 colleagues. So we do encourage an, you know, a number of them so that no one person is burdened with everybody's problems. Um, but we've got some terrific things going on in, in our um Industry with well-being rooms, um, people putting little baskets and of, of chocolates and and things like that, and for people to take away. So there's lots of well-being initiatives going on in various practices.
1: Uh, well, Alison and uh, uh, Rosie, um, it's been a huge amount for us to take away today, and I think one of the key points for me is, is how much of what we've heard that you're both doing within the veterinary profession. You know, how much transferable learning I think there is to take away here for other businesses and other people listening to today's show. I think there's a lot they can learn from the conversation we've had today. Uh, I'm not surprised that in both cases, um, I know, Rosie, you, you've received the BBA Chiron Award and the RCVS Impact Award in recognition for your outstanding contributions to the profession and Alison I know you've received an honorary membership of the British Veterinary Nursing Association for your contributions not surprised at all having listened to uh, you both today and just want to thank you both for for joining us and and sharing your stories and your your experience and I think this is going to be a really valuable show for for a lot of people in business um, and just generally to, to listen to as well so thank you both we're going to uh leave for a short while um and uh, listen to california dreaming by the mamas and papas and we'll be right back with danny and paul to round up today's show right after this
0: yawa radio bringing the feel-good feeling to every day
1: welcome back everyone yeah you were just listening to california dreaming by the mamas and papas um Paul, Danny, um, really fascinating interview. Again, I seem to say this every week, of course, with Alison and uh, Rosie there. Paul, what were some of the, the highlights really of our conversation, did you feel?
3: Well, Alison and Rosie give us a really good insight into the veterinary profession and not everybody's familiar with the veterinary profession, of course, and how it works in the corporates and the small businesses and, and, and all the issues there around, around that. Uh, and what they're doing, amazing work that they're doing. I think what also kept going through my mind is that I felt every, every industry or profession needs a rosy. <laughs> you know, someone who understands the issues about suicide, is passionate about doing something, knows their sector so well, and does really practical stuff in that sector to help and does research which is practical and applied and actionable, a lot of research that's done into suicide, into suicide is not actionable at all, it's of academic interest or it's fairly abstract, you know, but this is really practical, this is the experience of vets. This is what, you know, causes them distress, this is what can help, here's something specific we need to look into, you know, and so we do need to, to tackle the bigger problem of suicide, we need a person like that, or a few people like that in each sector, who tackle the problem in their sector.
1: I think it's a really good point. I think that definitely came across from uh, speaking with both Alison and Rosie was kind of the practical approach that both were were, were taking um, to deal with with the issues that are there. Danny, what were some of the key things for you?
2: I think it was a really interesting conversation highlighting the issue of suicide rates in the in, in the veterinary profession and and the reasons behind these rates. It's clear that people in this profession are often overworked and it can be a very stressful and emotional profession. And like Rosa said, it's not just about limiting access to means. It's about having the right support in place that vets don't reach the point where they feel that suicide is their only option.
1: OK, well, thank you both. And uh, both those reports that we referred to in our conversation with Rosie and Alison today, the one around postvention and prevention, will be highlighted on our website when we add the recording of today's show onto the Jordan Legacy website next week. Well, that's it for another episode of Jordan Space. My thanks to Danny and Paul and to our guests this week, Alison Clark and Dr. Rosie Alistair. Thank you also for tuning in. I hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful. And if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, please do get in touch either via our website at thejordanlegacy.com or by emailing hello at JordanLegacy.com. You can also engage with us on social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, using the username at Jordan Legacy UK. and you can find us on Facebook at the Jordan Legacy. You can listen to recordings of previous shows on our website by choosing the menu Jordan Space at the top, of our homepage for now from danny paul and myself we'd like to wish you a safe healthy and above all hopeful rest of your week and we're going to leave you with one final track which is here comes the sun by steve harley and cockney rebel
0: a big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at yawaradio.co.uk And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast Copyright applies. Yawa Radio, bringing the feel-good feeling to every day.